I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke once again, chapter 22. Uh, Luke 22, verses 39 through, we're actually going to read through verse 53, focusing, however, on verses 39 through 46. Uh, Jesus and his disciples have made their way from the upper room uh, in Jerusalem, down into the Kidron Valley, up onto the western slopes of the Mount of Olives. And now the second Adam, the Lord Jesus, has come into a garden. Not the Garden of Eden, but the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, here in this passage, we catch a glimpse of Jesus as we have never seen him before. Something of his humanity is on display in this passage. His frailty, uh, his weakness, his mental and emotional and psychological distress. Uh, So let's uh, take a look at this passage this morning and try to understand why. Why is Jesus experiencing these things? But let's pick up the reading in verse 39 and give careful attention to the hearing of God's word. He came out and went as was his custom. Incidentally, this is how Judas knew how to betray Jesus because it was Jesus' custom while he was in Jerusalem during this week to go out to the Mount of Olives. The disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing... Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd. And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. There's a pastor and 
theologian during World War II who was arrested and eventually executed. He was hanged at the camp uh, Flossenburg. And a medical doctor who served on that, uh, at that camp, who had served for a number of years and had witnessed countless executions, uh, wrote this in his journal about this man. Uh, the man's name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of his execution, he again prayed a short prayer and then climbed the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. In the almost 50 years I worked as a doctor, I've never seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. So here's my question this morning. What has happened to the Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? No tranquility here. No calmness of spirit here. Such is his distress. Luke tells us that he began to sweat drops of blood. What the physicians call hematidrosis, something that I doubt any of us have any experience with. Uh, I gather from reading this week that it's actually discussed very little in medical literature because it is such a rare condition. Such pressure, mental and physical pressure upon an individual that their sweat begins to come out as drops of congealed blood. And Dr. Luke is telling us that this is what Jesus began to experience in the Garden of Gethsemane. Such was the demand that was being placed upon him. And he says to his father, take this away. Remove this cup. Why? Well, my friends, this passage is not about Judas Iscariot, and it's not about you or me. It's about Jesus. So I want us to think about this passage along four lines this morning. Jesus' agony, uh, Jesus' isolation, his request, and his resolve. His agony, his isolation, his request, and his resolve. First of all, his agony. Luke is actually the most discreet of the gospel writers when it comes to Jesus' experience in the Garden of Gethsemane, but in verse 34, we read that Jesus was in agony, intense distress, such that his body is beginning to fail him. Uh, in Mark, the Gospel of Mark, Jesus <clears throat> says to his disciples, to Peter, James, and John, the three that he has brought along a little bit closer, he, has said, my, he said, my soul is very sorrowful even to death, a sorrow that is to death, a, a grief and a burden that is so severe and so heavy that it threatens Jesus' life. Don't water those words down. Those words describe what Jesus is really experiencing in his human flesh. 
a, a grief, a burden that is in itself life-threatening. And in Mark, Jesus also says he is greatly distressed and troubled. The word distressed, according to B.B. Warfield, describes someone who is in the grips of a shuddering horror. Something that overwhelms one's mind, leaving them in a, in a state of mental confusion, as if Jesus is beginning to ask the question, how am I going to cope? And the word troubled, it is used later in the Gospels to describe the women who made their way to the empty tomb, and they discovered the tomb was empty, but they were also greeted by an angelic being. An angel was there and spoke to them, and they were troubled. They were troubled because of an unearthly experience. They were earthly creatures, and they were coming into contact with a heavenly creature, something beyond the realm of their experience. And so as Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he begins to contemplate and as perhaps it begins to dawn on his human consciousness in a way it had never done before what it will cost for him to be the servant of the Lord for him to be the substitute the sin offering for his people Jesus experiences agony a life-threatening sorrow a distress that has him on the verge of mental derangement and a trouble that has him feeling out of sorts. Because Jesus is about to go where he has never been before. He is about to experience something that he has never experienced before. Jesus is thinking about what awaits him, what lies ahead. He is about to, become, about to come before God. He is about to come before a God of holiness, a God who is so holy that he cannot even look upon sin. And Jesus is to come before this God as a sin offering, as a substitute who would stand in the place of sinners and be a satisfaction for the justice of God. And he trembles in agony at the thought of it. What is going to become of me? How am I going to cope with the demands that are being placed upon me? You know, dear friends, we often read the scriptures a certain way, don't we? And frankly, we're often very self-centered. <laughs> We come to passages of scripture asking, what's in it for me? Where am I in this passage? What somebody has called the Where's Waldo hermeneutic. We say this as you know, lovingly and gentle as possible. This passage isn't about you. It's not about me. Maybe we come to this passage and we see Jesus in the midst of his trials and troubles in Gethsemane. And... We think, okay, well, Jesus has been through trials and troubles, and so he's able to help me through my Gethsemanes. 
Now, yes, our trials and our troubles are real, and it is gloriously true that Jesus is able to see us through them. That's not the focus of this passage. The focus of this passage is Jesus. The focus of this passage is what it would mean to him and for him to be the servant of the Lord, who would carry the sins of many and be reckoned a sinner. And it captures him at the very heart of his emotional and psychological life. He is at the end of his resources. As the incarnate son of God, true God and true man with a human body and a reasonable soul, with limited knowledge, with emotions and a psyche having to face the future without fully knowing what it will mean for him. He had to answer this call to be the servant of the Lord. And you understand this is a path which, a path which he has never gone down before. And the implications of being the servant of the Lord, it is a horror to him. It is an engulfing horror to him. And so he feels a sorrow so deep that it threatens his life. He is in agony to the point where his body is physically breaking down. His mind is overwhelmed by the prospect of what it will mean to die upon that tree. That's what Jesus felt. That was his experience. And then secondly, I want us to think for a few moments about his isolation. Matthew and Mark give us some more details here. Jesus stations his disciples. Now Judas is already gone. In fact, Judas is on the way with this crowd to betray Jesus. And so Jesus stations eight of the disciples and then going a little farther takes Peter, James, and John along with him. And then he goes on a little bit farther and falls down on his knees and prays. Now there are a couple of things I want us to notice. Now the first is simply this, that Jesus takes his disciples along with him. Eight and then three a little closer and he tells them to pray. Now Luke's account is a summary of, of the events, but we know from the other accounts that that Jesus has told them to, to watch and pray. And he comes back and he tells them to remain and stay awake. To stand, stand and, and, and uh, be on guard. To stay awake. To be watchful and pray. As though, as though he needed the presence of his disciples. Yes, they were to pray that they would not enter into temptation. But there's something more going on here. As though Jesus needed their companionship in the hour of his need. He was a man just as we are. He needed the support of his friends and companions. In the hour of his trial, he, he needed their presence. And from a distance, perhaps, he could, he could have looked over. And had they been faithful, could have looked over and seen them. And their presence would have been enough to encourage him and urge him on to stay the course. But what did they do? They slept. He slept. You know, there are few things worse than being alone. The sake of being utterly alone. But then equally, I think Luke is drawing our attention to this. 
that Jesus separates from them. He, he stations them in such a way that he actually deliberately separates from them. Because I think the task that is given to him, that the cloud that has now descended, has descended uniquely upon him. He alone can fulfill the mandate that has been trusted to him. This is not a joint effort. He alone can bear the sin of many. He alone can face down principalities and powers and make an open show of them. He alone can provide a, a, an acceptable sacrifice for the sins of his people. He alone can be the substitute and meet the dreadful wrath of God. And there is a sense in which uh, Jesus' utter isolation, it begins here. It begins here in the garden. It is a foretaste of what is to come. And furthermore, I think this is clearly fulfilling a pattern, pattern built into the Old Testament ritual of sacrifice, worship in the tabernacle and temple, which was meant to teach God's people of the hope of forgiveness. You remember there was a dramatic separation that took place, a dramatic isolation that took place on the Day of Atonement. When... The sins of God's people were confessed over the heads of these two goats. And one of them was slain as, a, as an offering. And then the other was led out from the temple. Into the wilderness. Outside of Jerusalem. Led out into the wilderness. And with the sins of God's people as it were. Over its head. Released into the wilderness. And there that animal would wander with the sins of the people upon its head until the end of its life in utter isolation. That's what's beginning to happen here. This is, this is the beginning of the fulfillment of that reality. This is the first stage. He came according to God's purpose to enter into this isolation, carrying the sins of his people upon his own back. And so... His agony, his, his isolation, and then his request. Now, please, brother, brothers and sisters, if you are ever, ever going to understand what Jesus has done for you, and if you are ever going to understand how much the Father loves you, then you must listen to Jesus' request. In verse 43, Jesus says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Now please, please let that sink in. Take that in for a moment. Don't, don't run ahead. Don't try to qualify it with what Jesus goes on to say next to, to minimize the significance of this prayer. This is not a mere suggestion of the Lord Jesus. This is a prayer request of Jesus to his heavenly Father. And the prayer request is this. Father, take this cup from me. That cup which the Old Testament prophets spoke of. The cup of God's wrath. The cup of God's judgment. The cup of God's holy 
indignation against sin. That cup. And Jesus shrank from it. As the engulfing realization of of what it will cost to be the sin bearer. To save the likes of you and me. and And he shrinks from it. You hold your breath here. What what if the father had heard the request of his son and said, Enough! Come home, my son. There would be no savior. There would be no substitute. There would be no cross. No atonement. No forgiveness of sin. No acceptance with the father. No adoption into his family. And we would all eternally perish. But the thought of coming before God as a substitute for sinners, he shrinks from it. It's a horror to him, the thought of what it would mean as a a hellish and demonic encounter. He shrank from it and prays, Father, take this cup away. And his father, his father says, If we can peel back the curtain for a moment. His father says, no, my son. We cannot do that. So again, we we will never fully grasp what Jesus has done for us in the gospel. And how much the father loves us in his love. Giving his son for us and saying, no, my son. We cannot do that. We made a promise. But I will strengthen you by my spirit. And he sends an angel to comfort Jesus. I don't know about you, but I want want to meet this angel one day. Imagine standing in the courts of heaven and God speaking to this angel. I charge you To go and strengthen my son in this hour of his greatest need. Angel he must be. I also wonder as I was thinking about this during the week. What is is Satan saying to Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane? We know as Luke has told us that the time has come. The opportune time has come for Satan to return. To try to destroy God's purposes and bring Jesus down. Satan is here in the garden. He's already won Judas Iscariot over and Judas is on his way and now Satan as a roaring lion prowling around seeking whom he most desires to devour. What is he saying to Jesus? Perhaps pointing over that stone's throw away to Those three slumped over disciples who are supposed to be awake and praying. Asking Jesus, are they worth it? Are they worth it? You're going to go through this for them? And so there's his request. But then there's this, this extraordinary statement. These words as Jesus was upheld by the power of the Holy Spirit every step of the way in his ministry and he says not my will but yours be done resolve of Jesus not my will but yours be done 
Friends, Jesus has two wills as the incarnate Son of God, as true God and true man. His divine will is one with the Father and the Spirit, but as a true man with a reasonable soul, he has a true human will. And that's what we're thinking about here. Not my will, but yours be done. That's amazing. It's amazing because it shows us that there was absolutely nothing in Jesus that wanted to drink this cup. He's really saying, this is not my will. How how could it be? How could the sinless Son of God desire to go to the place where he would cry the cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How could the sinless Savior who has only ever known the love and the embrace and the blessing and the favor of his Father desire to be numbered among the transgressors and treated, as Luther says, as the worst sinner who ever was. It's utterly contrary to the holy humanity of Jesus to desire such a thing. So there's nothing about this that naturally attracts the holy will of Jesus. So friends, I wonder if you see what's going on here in the Gospel of Luke. It really is amazing. Luke has been setting this up for us from the very beginning. Remember that Luke introduces Jesus in terms of Jesus coming into the world as the second Adam. And the way that he did that is he crunched together the wilderness temptations of Jesus and the genealogy of Jesus, which he traces all the way back to the first man, Adam. And you remember what happened with the first man in the Garden of Eden in in Genesis chapter 3. When Adam was there, he came to a tree. Now, all the trees in the garden are are described in identical terms. They're, They're beautiful to behold and delicious to taste. But about this one tree, God had given this special command. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. But you see, there was nothing nothing in Adam that said, don't eat the fruit of that tree. Only the will of his heavenly father saying, trust and obey. We know how that went. Adam didn't trust and he disobeyed his father. And now here enters the second Adam, the second man. And he's going to an altogether different tree. He's going to such a tree that everything in his holy humanity resists it. The place where he will be identified with the filth and the shame and the guilt of our sin. Where he will come under the curse of Almighty God. And he's coming to this tree and there's nothing about it that's desirable to him, but you see it's the will of his his Father. It's his Father's will determined in concert with the Son and the Spirit in eternity that his Son should be submissive as the God-man to his Father's will in obedience in an obedience in which there was no attraction whatsoever in the deed 
he was being summoned to do. My friends, that is how much he loves you. Here in the Garden of Gethsemane, there is this great moment. Now I know, you know, if we're looking at this from the perspective of the eternal decree of God, that God's decree is fixed and and unchanging, but from this human perspective in the Garden of Gethsemane, redemption hangs in the balance. The hope of the ages comes to this moment. And what does Jesus do? It takes your breath away. Because even at the end of his resources, humanly speaking, upheld by the Spirit, Jesus resolved to love you, to love me, to love us to the very end, no matter the cost. That's what Paul speaks about when he says that Jesus became obedient to the point of death, even death on that cursed tree upon that cross. You know, Jesus knew his Bible. Jesus knew the book of Deuteronomy, which says, cursed is everyone who is hanged upon a tree. Paul knew the same Bible in Galatians 3.13 when he says, Jesus has redeemed us from the law by becoming a curse for us. As scripture says, everyone is cursed who is hanged upon a tree. He tasted the curse of God and and it makes you wonder, Jesus, how, how could you do this for me? I wonder if you can understand, begin to understand the wonder of being able to say with the Apostle Paul, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. You see, it's the resolve of Jesus to go all the way to the cross that brings salvation to us. You know, it's the simple gospel that the the littlest here can understand. That Jesus died for my sins. And I get his forgiveness. I get his righteousness. Upon a life I did not live. Upon a death I did not die. I stake my whole eternity. Let me just say two things in light of this passage, as we, uh, as we wrap up here, first I think we should say or see that this passage proves beyond the shadow of a doubt that there is no other way of salvation but through faith in Jesus Christ. Ah, oh, you might say, aren't there many, many ways? That's the... That's the zeitgeist, is it? That's the spirit of our age. That's the air in which we breathe. That each to his own, each finds their own way. But you see, the Son of God, the only begotten Son of God, asked his Father, is there any other way? And the Father said, no, my son, there is no other way. And so do you think that if we stand before the Lord one day on the day of judgment, the judgment of my life, and I say to the Father, I found my own way. I found my own way. Thank you very much. Don't you think the Father might say to you that 
Didn't, didn't I tell you in the gospel that there is no other way? You know, I can, I can understand how someone who has never heard the gospel, right, a, a, a total pagan, now you understand how I'm using that word, someone who has never come into contact with the gospel, how they might tell themselves, I'm going to find another way. But do you see how a person who has heard the gospel, has been taught the gospel and says to the Father, I'll find my own way, thank you very much. They are effectively spitting in the face of the Heavenly Father and in the face of Jesus Christ. So I want to plead with you, if, if, if you just listen to Jesus' prayer, you'll realize there is no other way. And to say there is another way, is to spit in God's face. And actually when your eyes are opened. I think you'll tremble at the appalling arrogance. Of ever having said I can find my own path. My friend do you really, do you really think. That he would have done this. If there was any other way. Do you think that the father would have said no to his own son as he faced going to the cross if there was any other way? That's the first thing. The second thing I think we should say from this passage is that it persuades us that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost all who draw near to God through him. Because Jesus has gone down so deeply to save us. Because Jesus in his love resolved to go to Calvary. Because the Father in his love did not spare his one and only Son, but delivered him up for us all. Later on in the Gospels, we're going to meet people in Jerusalem who pity Jesus for what he suffered. Don't pity Jesus. You can go to hell pitying Jesus. You're the one he pities. He's not looking for pity. He's looking for trust. He's looking for faith and the dawning of the realization that Jesus has given himself so that through faith in him alone, you might receive everything that you need. He bears God's judgments so that we might be free from it. He goes into the darkness that we might be brought into the light. He went into utter isolation so that even in the midst of our deepest loneliness, we never need be alone. He came under the curse in order that we might receive his blessing. He, he took the penalty and condemnation of God in order that we might be accepted. This is what Jesus was doing. So don't pity him. Praise him. Trust him. He alone could do it. He alone could bear the weight of sin. He alone could come under the dominion of death. And break a hole through it. You understand Jesus is the only one 
who has, who has ever done that. Yes, two others before him have bypassed death. Jesus was the only one to enter into death and to break through on the other side. As the architect and the captain of our salvation. And so the simple question is, do you, do you believe Jesus did this for, for you? Do, do you trust him? You know, there's no other way. We can make up all kinds of other ways, but if the Heavenly Father commanded His only Son to go through this for salvation, I cannot begin to tell you how foolish you would be to think that you could ever say to Him on the last day, I found another way. There's no other gospel. Friends, there's so much no other gospel that Paul said, even if an angel from heaven declares to you another gospel, let him be damned. It's Paul in Galatians. And the gospel that we love, the gospel that we rejoice in, the gospel that we cling to because our lives depend on it is, in my place condemned he stood. Hallelujah, what a savior. So let's, let's trust him. Or say to the Lord Jesus, how could you ever go through this and do this for me? And you know what his simple response to you is? His response is, because I love you with all my heart. How could you, how could you love someone like me? I love you because I love you. That's right, I love you because I love you. So dear friends, if you are struggling with doubts, if you are struggling to, to trust And the God of the gospel, would you lift your eyes this morning from the things that are keeping you from trusting in Jesus and the goodness of the heavenly father that sent Jesus into the world? And would you see in the garden of Gethsemane the utter trustworthiness and the unfathomable love of God the father revealed in the face of Jesus Christ? Let's trust him with all of our hearts. Let's pray together. Lord, it pains us to think of all of the ways that we have failed the Lord Jesus and how like these disciples we are who fell asleep. We thank you that in your kindness, Heavenly Father, you sent the Lord Jesus into the world to be our substitute And we thank you that there is such grace for sinners. Thank you this morning for the resolve of our Savior to go beyond Gethsemane to Calvary and there carry our sins and receive in our place the condemnation and judgment that we deserved. We thank you for the freedom that we now have because of what Christ has done. And Father, I pray this morning that you would work faith into our hearts, confidence in the gospel, the good news of your love, the good news of salvation because of what Jesus Christ has done. And by your spirit, I ask that you would help us to love and trust and follow the Lord Jesus Christ all of our days. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.